Let me make four statements. What comes to mind? We need a really good attorney. She is an Olympic gymnast. He is a very capable mechanic. And that school has top-notch teachers. Just hearing those statements, we envision individuals who are skillful in their areas of expertise. We've maybe met some of these individuals. We'd maybe like to meet more of them at times, especially maybe when the car's not working or something. But they know their stuff. They've mastered their craft. We've seen such people. They have unique skills, but they also have unique insight and discernment when it comes to facing the work that they do. Now, every one of us could identify something that we'd want to be really good at, like these people. We may never happen. It may never happen, but we'd we'd love for it to happen. We'd like for that to be the case. You'd love to know, and maybe you're pursuing that, to become a really good mom or a good dad a good wife or husband, a great athlete, an expert at your occupation, a master of some craft or hobby, musical instrument, sport, some area of study. You'd love to be known as one who's really good at that. The question that I ask us all to consider today is this. Do you want to be really good at life? Do you want to be really good at living? Do you want to be a man or woman who is skillful in living? Someone who is insightful and discerning, knowledgeable in relationships, knows how to handle money, skillful emotionally, occupationally, in your thought life, in your spiritual walk with God. Someone who has skill in life. The book of Proverbs is written to train us in skillful living and to teach us to become discerning people. God knows there's need for more followers of Christ to be such people. Skillful in the way that they live, discerning about life, knowledgeable in how to put life together and how to pursue it. And think of it, this book is designed to develop our ability Two, and I just list a few ideas, how to read people. Not to put them in a wrong category judgmentally, but how to really read who people are. It is written to help us to make wise plans, to tackle problems, to handle trials, to decode the way that life was created to work. To motivate us to live for the glory of God, and thus to genuinely enjoy life. This book was written for this purpose. It's handed to you, it's handed to me for this reason, that we would know how to live life and that we would have discernment in this world. As we begin a series of sermons from the book of Proverbs today, allow me to highlight just two background ideas. When we look at this profound book, it could be analyzed for weeks and weeks on end. It could be an, an, an entire study just to discern how the Proverbs are put together and how they function and how we are to read them. 
Obviously, this is not the right setting for that, but I do think that there's a couple of background ideas that are helpful for us, and these must serve through the rest of the series. So plow with me a little bit in this background information. But the first idea is Proverbs in the context of ancient Near Eastern wisdom literature. Now that, for many, sounds like a place to check out. I'm going to go to sleep right about now. Ancient Near Eastern literature, what on earth is that about? But again, any book is written in a context. And I think it's important for us to know the context of this book and to stretch ourselves on this. Wisdom literature and collections of wise sayings by sages were produced by many cultures in the ancient Near East. In those days, there were no experts who specialized in specific areas of knowledge, and so the king would call in this expert to gain insight. Rather, in more general ways, sages were brought together to see certain principles, certain ways that the world works, and to give their kings and the nobles and those at court ideas about how to govern wisely. All of the nations were doing this sort of work that we find here in Proverbs. Proverbs is not entirely unique then. In fact, I think we could find a number of Proverbs that show influence from other cultures. Ideas that were written by other sages before the Proverbs were written. And in the research of the wise men, they drew from these ideas. Does that trouble us? I don't think it should at all. Wise men are looking at the same world. They're observing many of the same relational outcomes and life principles. All operated, indeed, under the common grace of God. Now, they may have been running against God. The way that they worship God may have been entirely broken. But nonetheless, under the common grace of God, people who do not know the Lord can see some things. They can see, for instance that if you don't weed your garden, you don't get as much produce out of it. A pretty simple idea. But as they say that, we say, well, God didn't tell them that, so it's not true. Not at all. They live in this world that God created, and people who do not know the Lord can see things. And as they see some ideas and write some of these Proverbs, sometimes the biblical authors might even draw from them. That's not a trouble to them because God is the Creator. There were people who came before and there are people who can see on some level. So it should not surprise us to see some crossover work between pagan and biblical wise men. And having said that, Proverbs is not entirely like all that is around it in the ancient Near East. In fact, it is is very unique in some specific ways. And I, I know this is a bit... Uh, busy for a slide, forgive me for that, but if you just look at point number one under pagan cultures, the wise sayings of other nations placed heavy emphasis on the good behavior of citizens for the health of the state. Going across the column there to Israel, by contrast, Proverbs stresses the individual's response to God. The context is decidedly moral, not political. So the primary idea with many of the ancient wise men is the nation. And so these wise sayings are offered with a political bent. Not so in the book that we're reading. It's about the individual and God. 
And I think we could say that the wise men of, of Israel, and particularly Solomon here, I think we could certainly say that they understood if people live wisely, the nation will be well served. But the point is not the nation, it's not politics, it's our relationship with God. Second point of distinct uniqueness in the book of Proverbs, the wisdom literature of other cultures magnified the office of the wise man or sage. It elevated certain occupations as superior to others. To be a king was a superior job. To be a wise man was a superior job. There were many other jobs that didn't matter at all. The book of Proverbs does not look at life that way at all. Proverbs degrades no occupation. It only degrades laziness. Third distinction. Wisdom among pagan cultures, the sages of other nations, see wisdom as an intellectual discipline for privileged scholars. Proverbs, by contrast, bids all come. It views wisdom as the pursuit of disciples who desire to honor the Lord. That is a radically distinct way of going about wisdom. And how many of us have read this book and said, I, I don't know that I get it all. I don't understand it all. We're dealing with the wisdom of Proverbs, but it's put in our hands to understand and to discern. And I think God, our Father, then entrusts us with the task of learning to think in a God-honoring, biblical, wise way. Number four, as far as distinction, primarily Proverbs is unique in that it sees all wisdom as the creative design and the sole property of the one living eternal God who is creator, sustainer, and sovereign Lord over all things. This monotheistic orientation, this sovereign God is unique in the Proverbs that we read here. The fear of the Lord, not intellectual pride then, and the revelation of God, not human invention, is the key. So there's the, with the pagan sages, there's the elite class. And only some can understand our wisdom. But as they serve the nation, they will build it up. The Proverbs that we are reading, even though there's much crossover at times in its orientation or in specific statements, is all about the individual and God. It's a relationship with the Lord of the universe. And that's radically distinct. So, we look at Proverbs in the context of ancient Near Eastern wisdom literature. Not unique, very unique. Secondly, the background to Proverbs, we look secondly at Proverbs in the context of adolescent development. I haven't gotten lost in the sociology here, but that's very significant to the background and understanding of this book. Adolescent development. If you're not sure today if you're an adolescent, you're, you're just, I, I, don't, I think I know what that word means, but I'm not sure if I'm an adolescent, then you probably are one. Um, adolescence, we figure out what adolescence means after we emerge from the fog of it. <laughs> then we look back and go, oh, that's what adolescence was. It's really kind of hard to define when you're in the middle of it. But adolescence is a stage of youth marked by four things, four characteristics. The first is rapid physical and emotional changes that are difficult to manage. When you're 
eight years old and you move to nine years old, there's not a whole lot of change. In fact, you really wish there was a lot more. But when you get into that 12-year, 13, 14-year-old range, rapid emotional, physical changes, and they're not easy to handle for anybody. Secondly, a heightened sensitivity to peer pressure. Not that this is a new sensitivity, but it's heightened. In adolescence, young people are very, very aware what their peers think and what they're doing. Everybody's doing this. No other family does it that way. Right? I'm the only one who's required to live this way. That's, that's the stuff of adolescence. It's not evil, not bad, it's just the reality. Third is a growing interest in discovering who I am. How do I fit in this world? What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? Where am I going to find a, a place? How am I going to survive? Who am I? It's not that younger children aren't asking that question, but they're not dwelling on it. In adolescence, you begin to really think, who am I? And fourth, a developing interest in determining what I believe. What do I believe? Quite often, it's whatever my parents do not believe in adolescence. That's, that's kind of where we track. And that is, I think, in and of itself, a natural process. We often come to the firm conviction that our parents were right all along sometime later. But there's a testing and a trying of what is delivered to us. What do I actually believe? I I think most of us would recognize, and this isn't original with me, I've developed pieces of it, but it's not original with me by any means. We just recognize as we look at life that this is kind of adolescence on some level, and virtually every culture would say to some degree this is what's going on. Now, it will look very different in the East than it does in the West. But these ideas are taking place. These are the realities of adolescence. Now, what's that got to do with anything in the book of Proverbs? Let me say, first of all, before I address that directly, none of these characteristics goes away when you, quote, grow up, right? Everyone here, everyone, is concerned to some degree or another about peer pressure. We're all still, even those aged among us, still trying to kind of figure out who we are. Right? I mean, it doesn't go away. Maturity eases the challenges of adolescence. But many adults, for many adults, the transmission of their developmental engine goes out somewhere around age 14 or 13 or maybe it's 15 but they get stuck there they really haven't in maturity developed past 14 now as people look at them they say well they've they've got a job they're married they have a house Uh, people may even see them as accomplished on some level we might have even fit them into the first statements of the sermon today that's a really good fill in the blank That person does this really well. All of these things have come together through the passage of time, but the transmission went out. They've never been able to shift into a higher gear of maturity. They're stuck at age 14, even though they're 47, 61, or whatever age they are. They're still stuck back there. 
So whether an adolescent or an adult stuck at age 14 internally, or a mature believer who wants to grow in wisdom, whoever it is, Proverbs is designed to help us move out of immaturity and to live life with skill and discerning insight. I think then that this book is a manual for all of us. It should be something we welcome in our life to say this book is a gift from God to help me grow up. To show me who I am. To teach me how to think. To help me develop to become the person that God wants me to be and to find the joy that seems so elusive at times. This book for that reason. I know it's a lengthy introduction, but it really introduces a whole series of sermons. And let's bring that idea with us then as we move to the title of the book in verse 1 of Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 1. Here we read the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Solomon is the author of the majority of the book. The writings of other authors are included toward the end of the book, but Solomon is the primary author. Notice that unlike the sayings of other cultures, this book is not addressed to the wise man's student, to his son, Rehoboam, for instance, to a governmental official, or even pointed to the court. It's just laid out here, these are the Proverbs of Solomon, the king of Israel. Now what's happening there, though subtle, is profound. As Walke puts it, Solomon democratizes the book. That is, he puts it in the hands, not of those who are the elite sages, but he puts the book in the hands of everyone. It is from the outset a book for the common people. The purpose of this book is now laid out in verses 2 through 6. There are a lot of nouns here, and I warn you ahead of time. Uh, it makes it a bit laborious to work through because it's, it's not, so to speak, telling a story. It's not instruction as such. This is just saying, here's the purpose of the book, and it's not getting into how we get to any of these things. So will you bear with me a, a bit here? There's just a lot of nouns, and we'll define a, a number of them. But let's try to get a sense of what this book, why this book is written. What is its purpose? The first purpose, if I could say it generally, is to attain moral skill. Verse 2, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. So Solomon's a writer, here's why he's writing it. So that we might know wisdom. The basic idea, the meaning of this Hebrew word, is skillful living. The ability to make wise choices and to see the world in such a way that synchronizes with God's moral design. Instruction here, a Hebrew word misses us in the English. But the idea is to educate by the use of correction. Now we hear the word instruction and it just means somebody's teaching you something. But the Hebrew word behind this translation has something of the idea of correction. Proverbs is written then to set us straight, to correct wrong ways that are in us. There are ideas in our head, there are orientations within our soul that are twisted and broken. Proverbs is a friend. It comes along and says, don't do that. 
Don't think like that. Think this way. Act this way. In this situation, you've got to change the way that you're oriented here. Wisdom, skillful living, and correction. Second part of verse 2 says, to understand words of insight. The Hebrew would indicate to pay close attention to instruction so that we intellectually grasp an idea so that we're equipped to exercise discernment based on that counsel. To understand words of insight. I hear the teaching, I get the idea, and I apply it in my life. That's why this book is written. Verse 3, to receive instruction in wise dealing. That is, if I could add that word, that is, in righteousness, justice, and equity. Now, where is receive pointing? To receive instruct. That's pointing at the student. The student will gain something. There's something to be given here. And there's a responsibility that goes with this idea to hear and to accept instruction. So this book is written that we might be given something, but we need to reach for it and receive it and take it in. Receiving instruction in wise dealing. That is living skillfully, and it's characterized by righteousness, justice, and equity. In other words, a life that conforms to God's standards, righteousness, that treats people properly, justice, and deals with them uprightly. The word actually could be translated, shoot straight. It's learning to shoot straight with people as we use that phrase. To live life in a way that makes sense to everyone, and primarily to God. That's why this book is given. Verse 4, to give prudence to the simple Knowledge and discretion to the youth. I think these are parallel statements here in verse 4, but prudence, not a word we use very often. Uh, there was a time people named their children prudence. I haven't heard that one for a while. We don't even know what that word really means, uh, prudence. But we note here, before I get to that word, note the shift here, to give. What was verse 3? To receive. You see, there's from the angle of the student to gain something. Now the shift subtly to the teacher to give something. And what is being given is prudence, which is a sense of shrewdness, the ability to foresee trouble and to prepare to handle it wisely. This is a person who can walk around the minefield and not get blown up. They're able to see ahead that there's problems on the horizon. There's difficulties out there, and there's a way to negotiate my way through these challenges and these problems wisely. That's prudence. Prudence is something that the simple person desperately needs. Now, here's another thing that so misses us in the English, but the words for fool or simple, or scoffers, we use these words in the English, behind them are Hebrew words that put people into various categories. Here the word is petty, one who is naive, here's, here's the simple person, they're naive, gullible, easily enticed. This person walks into moral traps and relational landmines and does not get it until there's been an explosion and they're missing a limb. 
prudence is provided for such a person that they might learn to see ahead, to see the trouble, to adjust, and to walk wisely in this world. Second half of verse 4, knowledge and discretion to the youth. The Hebrew for discretion speaks of the ability to devise noble plans and see the best course of action to gain the goal. So for the youth, for the immature individual, the book of Proverbs is given that they might see the way forward. So could I say it this way? God gives us this book to help young people know how to save money to get to college. Not all of them, it's an application point, but that, this book is written in part for that. To plan for a healthy marriage. To be doing things right now as a young person that's steering me toward success in marriage. It's all kinds of people, young people and adolescents, that are headed pell-mell for destruction in marriage, and they have no idea. Wise people looking at their life can see they're headed for trouble. But in their folly, in their incapacity to understand, they don't see it. This book is written to get them on the right course toward marital success, rather than failure. This book is written, another word of application, to help us avoid people who will drag you down and ruin your life. You've got to realize there are people who build you up and edify you, and there are people that are going to drag you down and destroy you, and some people can't tell the difference between the two. This book is given to us to help us make those determinations, particularly in our youth. To stay out of financial trouble and on and uh, relational trouble and on and on it goes. Now, when we say these things, I ask you this question here. When, when we present what the purpose of the book of Proverbs is, does any of this create a thirst in you? Does this whet your appetite? Do you say, I need that? I want that. I long to be such a person, to have discernment and understanding, to be able to see through life's challenges, its twists and its turns, and to know how to negotiate through the landmines of this world. Do you want that? If you say, not really, I really can't wait to get out of here, I wish this sermon was over, I want to leave, then here is one warning among others that there's something desperately wrong. Your transmission and the internal transmission of your soul, it's stuck and it's not going to shift to a higher gear. Because you don't want to talk about what you need to talk about. You want to run from the truth that will help you navigate life. But if you say, I do want that, there's a thirst there, a desire for wisdom. And this book is given to us as a gift. And by God's grace, as He gives us life to work our way through a large section of this book, He will begin to provide that wisdom in bite-sized pieces. If there is that desire, we need to understand then, also, that wisdom does not drop into our laps. It's not going to come by coming to the next few Sunday mornings and hearing this series. I hope it will help. 
I hope that will motivate and challenge and open some windows for you, but it's not going to drop in your lap by simply coming and hearing some sermons. Rather, verse 5, parenthetically, we have this statement, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. Now there's a moral appeal there. The call to heed wisdom is issued to the naive and the immature throughout the book, but here the appeal is made to the wise, to the one who does understand. Even the wise need more wisdom and guidance. And there is an ongoing need for all of us then to learn God's truth so that we can obtain wisdom and steer the right course through life. So, here's the response. Listen. Increase in learning. Understand so that you obtain the guidance from God's Word. So the first purpose is to attain moral skill. If we could see a subtle difference at verse 6, it would be secondly to develop moral discernment. Now the two cross over significantly, but to attain moral skill, to develop moral discernment, verse 6 says, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. What is this all about? These sayings, proverbs, words, riddles. Derek Kidner says it well. He says, Proverbs introduces the reader to a style of teaching that provokes thought, getting under his skin by thrusts of wit, paradox, common sense, and teaching symbolism. So, if I could paraphrase him, he's saying this book is written to get under your skin. That is, it's made to irritate on some level, to make you think, and to get you to steer your thoughts toward what the author is saying. It's a provocative book. It's written to be provocative, that we would learn these riddles and come to understand the truth that they're pointing to. A proverb is written with just a handful of words, but there may be a lifetime of wisdom in that succinct statement. And you may be coming the rest of your days to discern the beauty of that statement, the wisdom that is in it. So much here put in pithy, short, succinct truths to help us intellectually grasp the teaching of the wise man. By reading the Proverbs, we begin to decode the moral wisdom and instruction that's embedded in them. By reading the Proverbs, we begin, as Ross puts it, to understand the language of the sages. Have you studied a language? You realize when you come in on day one, you're completely lost. You're thinking, I, there's, I, there's no way I'm ever going to understand this. But little by little, you begin to understand French or German or Spanish or Swahili. You, you, you begin to hear it. You begin to see it. You begin to grasp it. It just takes time to work through it. it you are not going to sit down with the book of Proverbs this afternoon and become a wise person. There's a translation process that's got to take place patiently over time as you continue to read and discern and seek to understand. And in this process, there is great value. Now, to verse 6 particularly, and all of this study of the book of Proverbs, there's a potential response, and that's that this is just dry learning. 
It really doesn't have a lot to do with my life. There were some really smart people somewhere that said some very profound things, and I don't necessarily think like that, and I don't really want to learn to work and to learn a new language. I don't want to do that. Don't think in those paths. Think in this path. I heard the testimony some time ago of a young university student. He was a young man that lived life fast. And he'd had a lot of experience in a very short period of time. One thing he liked to do fast was ride a motorcycle. He took very good care of that motorcycle. He explained and gave his testimony. He said, I, I love that motorcycle and I took great care of it. I was in my 20s. It was freedom for me. I love that machine. He drove the motorcycle one day to a friend's house and this man knew the Lord and had wisdom. And he said to this young man, that motorcycle is in pristine shape, but your life is a mess. You're broken. You know how to take care of that machine. You have no idea how to take care of your life. And in the mercy of God, that honest, loving word of rebuke pierced this young man's soul. And one of the most unlikely people ever turned to the Lord came to know Christ as his personal Savior and shared this testimony of faith that now my life is on track. By the grace of God, He has redeemed me. I have trusted in His death and His resurrection for the forgiveness of my sins. He has cleansed me of who I am in my innate state. And He's given me new life. That's the Proverbs in life. It's not an academic discipline as such, though intellectual pursuit is a necessary component to it, but what this truth is meant to do is not pack our heads with great insights. It's meant to transform our lives, to change who we are, the very core of our being, to give us the wisdom of God that changes lives. It's equipping the moral dullard. It's giving insight to the gullible and naive. That's what this is about, to change the way we live. Now we come then at verse 7, after this purpose is laid out, and I hope it does whet your appetite, but we come now to the very theme of the book, the banner over it all at verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Where do I start with this all? It's the fear of the Lord, which is a deep reverence for God. If I'm living in sin, such fear may show itself in trembling and cowering before the presence of God. There'd be nothing wrong with that if I am in line for His judgment. But generally speaking, the fear of God is to have a deep reverence for God that draws us to Him. Now it says here that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of this knowledge. It means here, beginning, the first and controlling principle. So if you're going to learn math, you're going to have to deal with numbers and symbols. You're really not going to get anywhere without them. 
It's not a perfect analogy, but the numbers and symbols are like the controlling first principle. Everything's going to operate with them, and you cannot develop mathematically without them. And if there's somebody here that's a great mathematician that says you can, tell me about it later. I, I don't know how it would be possible, but uh, you've got to have those numbers. You've got to have those symbols. A building cannot be erected without a foundation. You can make the most beautiful building in the world, but you set it on nothing, it isn't going to last. This foundational principle has to be there. In like manner, the fear of the Lord is the controlling principle of all wisdom and discernment. Cut out the fear of the Lord, and you have nothing. Reverence God, and you are at least on your way to to possessing true wisdom. So attempting to develop moral skill and discernment without the fear of God is like revving your car engine without putting it in gear. You can hit that gas pedal all you want, it'll make a big hairy sound. And a lot of people might think you're really wise. You're going nowhere. You're going nowhere without the fear of the Lord. You walk into Greek class, and as a few of us have, it's all Greek to you. Assignment number one is what? You've got to learn the alphabet. It's usually day one, go home that night, learn the Greek alphabet. If you haven't learned it already, you're going to have to learn this alphabet. I, I don't know that you would start a Greek class any other way, except maybe by way of introduction, but you're going to have to learn the alphabet. And a young seminarian may go home and fail to study, and he might feel bad about not learning the Greek alphabet, and he might even begin to blame other people in the class for, or at his home for reasons why he couldn't do the study and he hasn't been able to figure out the, uh, the, the Greek alphabet yet and they're moving on into day two and day three and day four and he keeps feeling bad about it and he keeps blaming other people for why he can't get around to learning the alphabet. But apart from learning the alphabet, he's never going to read Greek. This isn't going to happen. And in like manner, without the fear of the Lord, we will go nowhere book is telling us this. Without a reverence for God, you cannot live wisely. That's the foundational principle. And, and I, I'm not pointing honestly at any individual. I have no knowledge of this, but I, in, in a congregation of this size here today, it is undoubtedly the case that there are some of you here who think you know what's broken in your life. What's broken in your life is some person who's making your life miserable. It's some circumstance that if that was just gone, everything would be fine. It's something that you didn't get in your development, in growing up in your home or your situation. Some disadvantage that you've been assigned by life. And if it wasn't for that... All would be well. And the problem is you don't even have the first idea of what's wrong. And that is you don't fear God. You don't have a reverence for the Lord that opens your ears to hear His counsel and His teaching. 
and you are at that fundamental level broken and you keep pointing at the false reasons for it. Without the fear of the Lord, we have nothing. But once we come to fear God, to reverence God, to desire to know who He is, our ears are open to His wisdom. The negative is, verse 7b, fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools here, the Hebrew Elim, the Hebrew word describes a person who is thick-skulled and stubborn. One who is proud, argumentative, refuses correction, knows it's everybody else's fault that his life is broken, but won't listen like this young man did in this university to the word of rebuke. You are the one who's broken. This kind of fool is not intellectually stupid necessarily, but he's one who doesn't fear God. There's not a reverence for the Lord there, so there's not a reverence for the truth. And there's not an ability then to see himself for who he really is. If God showed up, the moral fool would be getting some instructions. Well, God does show up. He shows up, so to speak, in the corrective instructions of the morally wise. He shows up in the written word of God. He shows up in godly people that surround this individual's life. But this person doesn't want to hear it. Because he's stubborn and argumentative and refuses correction. He's stuck in adolescence. And you know what the fool says to such counsel that would draw him out of that stuck position? That's stupid. I'm going to do it my way. I know better. That is, to, the, to varying degrees, the trade language of adolescence. I'm not picking on the kids among us here because all of us older were kids once. And that was our trade language. That's dumb. That's stupid. Everything's dumb except for what you think. That's the trade language of adolescence. And there are adults seasoned in life and maybe even successful who are stuck right there. And they're going nowhere. Without the fear of the Lord, you cannot advance in wise living. We must reverence Him. But the fool doesn't. He despises wisdom and instruction. He turns away from it. He continues to broker in the trade language of the adolescent. And that lack of reverence for God does not show itself necessarily by shaking his fist in God's face. It comes by rejecting the good counsel and faithful correction. The fear of the Lord is the essential ingredient that makes the pursuit of wisdom possible, no matter how smart someone might be intellectually. And so, coming back to the context, we're dealing with primarily two scenes in the book of Proverbs. The first is the family, as parents teach children. The second scene is the court where the wise sage, the wise man, the teacher is building up the young people for leadership in Israel. Now, again, if you're following me on this, that's the direct context then is the teaching of adolescence. But every one of us needs that information in an ongoing way, no matter how mature we are. 
no matter how much wisdom we've attained, we continue to come to God's school. We come to His court to be educated there in His wisdom. And wherever we are in that whole process, we must pull up a chair at the table and listen. And know that everything starts with my heart attitude toward God. Do I fear Him? So I ask again, do you want to be really good at life? Do you want to be a man or woman who's skillful in living? Someone who is insightful, discerning, knowledgeable, prudent. Do you want to become a man or woman who knows God's ways and synchronizes his or her life to the moral design of the universe? Then we learn out of the gate here, first, fear God. And secondly, heed His word. Drink it in. Learn His ways. Give yourself to pursuing Him. This pursuit of wisdom is no mere academic pursuit. It is a life-changing adventure. And I know this. I know it in a way that affects me deeply to this day, and I'm sure will to the day I die. When I headed off to college... I was just smart enough to get respectable grades in high school while putting forward the minimal effort in every class. I knew exactly how to get by. I cared little about the world God created. I wasn't shaking my fist in his face by any means, but I just didn't read it that way. I read everything from a center of Dan Miller, as is the case with many adolescents. I was undiscerning. I was a moral fool with about as much insight for living as a meatloaf sandwich. I had no clue how life was put together. In the providence of God, he brought two things together. Two life circumstances collided. The first, in his utter grace and mercy, he brought me to my knees. And he brought me to a place where I let go of my life. It was that day, I can see it and where I was, when I really, in a heightened sense, began to fear God. That's just his gift. I didn't do anything to get there. I didn't earn it. But in his mercy, I began to fear the Lord. I'm not saying that I didn't to that point. but something unique was taking place. The second piece that he brought into the equation in my life was a course on the book of Proverbs. Those two things combined, and I changed radically. I didn't go to college to make a living. I wasn't mature enough to even know what that would mean or what that would be for me as I first went to college. But as the text of Proverbs was unfolded before me in class, Day after day, God's Spirit taught me that this book could teach me how to live. And suddenly I wanted that very badly. A thirst for wisdom was created in my soul that semester, and that thirst has never left. All I see as I make progress through life is how much more I have to learn. 
in recent days through the sabbatical that I've been granted as a church, I, I'm not coming back with any ideas of how good I am. I've come back with a whole lot of vision of how broken I am and how I desperately need the wisdom of God because I don't live with the moral skill that I want to. But God, with all of that qualifier, has given wisdom. And I see where I've tracked in life and how far I am from where I started on this journey in this relationship with the book of Proverbs and all of God's wisdom to grow in insight and discernment. I know this isn't in me. This is God's mercy. And so I ask you today, forgive me for taking this length of time to share a personal account, but for me, this is part of my DNA. It's why I'm here. It's why I've been here for 22 years. God has given wisdom, and it's sweet. Do you want it? Do you want it? It starts by being reconciled to God through the work that Jesus Christ has done, such as in the life of this young man that I referenced. To trust his death and his resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. To be reconciled to God is where it starts. If you have not been saved, you don't fear God like you must. But once we have come to Him as Savior, from there we enter God's school of instruction. And by His grace, my prayer for this assembly is that over these next weeks, we will deepen in our knowledge of wisdom. And from there, we give ourselves to the adventure of learning how to live. May God help us. Father, we bow before You with that petition in our spirit, asking that You will change and direct us and bring us to know your truth, your wisdom, and to develop into the people that you want us to become. I pray for anyone who knows not Christ as Savior, and I pray that you'd bring them to saving faith today. I pray for anyone who is stuck in immaturity, that you would grease the gears with the knowledge of your call. And I pray, Father, that there would be growth and change, that there'd be transformation. And I pause to give you thanks for the work of mercy that you're doing in my life. And I know in the lives of this assembly, with all of our weakness and our failings, we pause to give you thanks for the discernment that you are producing here, the wisdom for life in a fallen and broken world, continue to build us up in the faith. And we give to you, as you give us life, these weeks ahead to deepen in our knowledge of your wisdom. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.